This is the Thrive Content Clubcast. On today's episode of Content Clubcast, we speak to Carl Chrysostomo, who is a digital learning consultant. The core focus of his work is on learning architecture design, and he supports organisations that are looking to select and onboard new learning technology, and also organisations that are looking to get more value out of their existing learning technology investments. He helps organisations leverage the science of learning to make their learning more impactful, and he also helps individuals become more effective learners. Carl has a YouTube channel called Carl Learns, and he posts videos on the subject of learning science. He also has a popular interview series on LinkedIn, which is well worth a watch, where he speaks to cognitive scientists, learning science translators, neuroscientists, and all types of experts in the field. The aim of Carl Learns is to try to unpack the science of learning and to make it easy for people to understand. So let's dig in. Hi, Carl, and welcome to the Content Clubcast. And we finally found time to get together and record this after I think life and work and illness got in the way. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be here and to, to chat to us. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Excited to talk to you. So we're here today to kind of dig into the science behind learning a little bit more. And I know there'll be loads of great stuff coming up in the conversation. So let's just delve straight into, um, I guess, one of the first questions that I've got for you. And that's, you fairly recently made that switch from product management into learning science. So could you talk a little bit about that shift and I suppose what sparked it and how's it going? Yeah, great. Yeah, look, look I've actually um, worked in online learning since the, the late 90s. So, uh, yeah, I've been been in an industry for, for quite a while. Um, during that time, I've set up an e-learning business. I've worked for large technology providers like Saba and uh, Cornerstone. Though my love uh, for learning science only came into my life more recently. And it's only been in the last year or so that it's kind of formed a core part of my work, my kind of day-to-day work. And my love for learning itself started a number of years ago. I was working on a piece of custom content for a, for a client, and it was actually quite successful. It went um, and was put in for a, an award. And when we were compiling this award, I got access to information that showed um, the impact the award had on people's lives. Um, so we got access to information and, and, and stories around that. And that's, that's, that's quite rare. If you've ever been involved in submitting an award, you normally get like headline information or feedback from the or L&D contact or maybe the function you're working with. You might get a whole pile of statistics, but um, yeah, we got access to a amazing kind of end user stories. And um, and there was one particular uh, story, one one story that um, um, had a profound effect on me. This, this piece of learning had actually changed someone's life. Um, and um, um, yeah, it had a really huge impact and it kicked off my curiosity in how we learn. Um, and this this led me to the science of learning. So, um, and then over time, I'd uh, had the um, uh, luxury of working with a neuroscientist during my my time and uh, in the industry, and uh, and that kind of built up my my knowledge in this particular area. So, when I was kind of considering my next career move, um, do I continue with product management 
or move into the kind of the science of learning. I think it was an easy decision for me because it was kind of natural next step to that evolution, right from that kind of flashbulb moment um, from that from that story. So I'd like to point out I'm not a cognitive psychologist or a neuroscientist, and um, I don't hold a degree in any of these related areas. What I am is I'm someone um, who is highly passionate about the science of learning and someone on a mission to immerse themselves in the subject area and share what I've learned and also uh, give a platform to experts to share what, what they know as well. Yeah, brilliant. And it, I mean, it must have been, I mean, it's quite a bold move, I think, and a bit of a risk as well to kind of make that shift. Um, how is it going? Are you, you know, are you having fun? Is, are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm working uh, with learning and development people who aren't aware of, of the science of learning or it's not a natural part of their day-to-day work. So there's a big educational process that has to go on. You know, I'm not uh, very really hooked into a team that understand learning science and they want to um, take it to the next level. It's, it's often starting with the basics. Um, so all the stuff I do in terms of my interviews around the kind of the Carl Learns interviews with experts and all the work that I've done over time in terms of putting videos out on, on the, on the, on the subject of learning science, that all comes together in those, in those sessions with those, with those L&D teams. Yeah, and you just touched on something there that I, I think within kind of our industry, within the L&D industry or, or HR or organisational development in general, um, learning science is a little bit of a hot topic, but people don't necessarily know how to get into it. So, you know, how would someone kind of start on that learning science journey, that interest in learning science and what do people need to think about? Yeah, it, it um, you know, I would say, when I first started to explore the science of learning, I was I was a bit overwhelmed. Um, I spent a lot of maybe lost hours in research papers. The depth of subject matter is quite daunting. Everything felt a little bit academic as well. Um, I didn't really feel that that was me um, at the time. Um, I didn't really know when where to turn, and I really wanted to understand um, this subject matter. Uh, but it did feel like it was a mountain to climb. And I, I would say the, the, the thing that was a real game changer for me was um, finding learning science translators. And so these are people that kind of dive into all that ac- academic research um, and they repurpose it and, uh, um, and they find a way that can be more easily understood by people, say, who work in learning and development. Um, and they've really helped me. And I think it takes a, a certain skill set to decipher an c- academic paper. You know, you can get you can get really lost. You know, because you'll go into an academic paper, then it will reference another academic paper, and you find yourself going down a rabbit hole. So, learning science translators tend also to pick out the cream of the crop, the best and the most researched um, uh, theories or um, scientific stuff which is out there which you can then lean on and use in your in your own practice um so people good learning science translators um lauren wardman um people like clark quinn paul kirshner and miriam nealon they all do that hard work to make that stuff uh all that research really accessible 
Um, and they all come from it from different angles, which is quite interesting. So Lauren, she's great on kind of the brain, the biology of learning. She's got a really holistic view of the world of learning. Clark Quinn, superb on entry level stuff. Um, he's written some great books on the subject. He has a, a good blog, Quinnovation. Um, and he's done some courses. I think he's done, I did a, a one-on-one learning science course with Clark. So really good entry-level content. And Paul and uh, Mirijam, um, they're, um, uh, they're like a double act and they're all about the evidence. So um, when um, you see a, a piece of research or, or even a company making a claim that say, oh, our VR product will improve your learning, they will help you understand that how to unpack that um, and make sure you're able to assess the rigor of that claim. You know, did that piece of VR improve the learning? Um, and so they'll make they'll help you understand: is there good evidence behind that claim? Um, and are those, you know, is that is that claim truthful or not? So they're great. So there are lots of uh, different learning science translators, hugely hugely um, helpful. Though if you do want to um, um, get into academic papers then I would recommend Google Scholar. Um, it's a freely accessible search engine. It indexes the full text or uh, metadata of kind of scholarly articles. Um, and you can put in a search on something like space practice, which is a, a highly regarded learning science concept. And you can look at the, the research around it. Yeah, and I, and I think this is something I talk about with my team quite a lot, the, the kind of the rabbit hole of research that we end up down um, and coming from an academic background, it's hard to know kind of when to stop, isn't it? And you can end up, like you say, doing that research and, and, and then leading on to further research and further research and further research. So it's good to have people um, like the, the names you mentioned there to kind of distill some of that, but also be able to dig into it yourself. Um, but I know you mentioned very briefly there about um, spaced learning practice. Could we dig into that a little bit more? I know because I'm quite I'm quite interested in spaced learning in general, but I think one of the misconceptions about it is that it is just about pausing between things, but it's much more in depth than that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Look, there are um, spaced practice makes up a whole host of different learning concepts that you can apply apply in your design of your learning. Um, and I suppose space practice is my favourite. And I think one of the reasons why is that it's one of the most researched subjects or concepts in, in learning science. There's lots of research behind it. And um, even more recently, um, uh, the research has, has come out that uh, has helped build a base of evidence around, around the theory. So space practice is all about spacing your practice out the practice of what you've learned over a period of time. And it stems from the work of um, Herman Ebbinghaus. It's in the 1800s, so it's, it's quite a while back. Uh, but as I said, lots of research to kind of support his theory um, has, has happened over, over time. And his forgetting curve, this is the thing he came up with, suggests that we forget stuff that we have learned over time unless we practice it. So that's a kind of, that, this is the kind of foundation of, of space practice. Um, and it's that practice that has the effect of making our memories resistant to, to forgetting. Um, and by using it, what we're doing is we're kind of reconstructing what we have learned. Yeah, so rebuilding what we've learned. And more importantly, we're kind of re 
constructing the neural pathways or the neural pathways that uh, were created that, that led to that learning. So over time, um, uh, keep, keep using space practice, keep practicing helps embed that learning or what you have learned into um, our long-term memory, which is incredibly important because that's where we want it so we can recall it when we need it. So what does this mean practically? So if we're studying ourselves, um, we shouldn't cram stuff. I think that's a, a big, big thing to understand. Show not to work. Um, the way I use space practice, something simple is that I write questions down as I learn stuff. So if I'm learning from a book or a course, I write, I write questions down. And then I diarize at a point, maybe a day or a few days later to answer those questions. So that's a, that's a technique I use. And, and why wait a day? Well, that is all to do with sleep. Why space practice is so good is when we sleep during those practices or uh, post that learning, um, sleep helps us consolidate our thoughts. So for example, if we're learning motor skills, so uh, playing tennis, we're kind of learning, learning how to play tennis. Um, during our sleep, our body might be static, but our brains are practicing and processing that skill. Um, so if you skip a night's sleep after um, a tennis lesson, you kind of wasted your time. It's not good for, good for learning. So space out your practice and uh, be aware of the importance of sleep. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I guess sleep is just so fundamental to, to so much of our life as well in, in terms of being able to just cope on a daily basis and and um, obviously it's it's good for your, your mental health and your physical well-being as well. Just want to touch on um you, you mentioned there about that kind of like intense cramming and how it should be avoided. I'm, I'm guessing there's a lesson in there for the L&D industry who are kind of stuck in their ways of creating 45 minute e-learning courses with an assessment at the end where people will just cram, do a knowledge check question and then off they go into their um, world of whatever it is they're doing. And obviously that's not we know we know it's not a great way of working, but, it, you know, it, it, how do you challenge that perception, I suppose? Yeah, I, I think, well, I. I, I like exposing people to the science and explaining why using something like space practice is is, is so so much better than uh, just doing it in the traditional way that you've explained. Uh, but then also bring to life different ways that you can then um, uh, utilize something like space practice. So um, sending nudges or short assessments. Um, at different points in time is a much better way than just kind of giving someone a, a course and an assessment at the end, get them to learn something. We, we, could, we could talk about that as, as part of um, some, some of the other concepts that um, I look at. But yeah, using something like nudging um, instead of cramming is, is, is much more important. So yeah, bring, bring the, um, the science to life show examples of how um, space practice can actually be used through something like nudges and, and short assessments over time. And also don't be afraid in the learning to tell people that this course has been designed with learning science in mind. You know, the, it's, people do respond really well to this. 
um, because and um, but also give people choice. I think if you try and you know people are, unfortunately people are used to turning up or going online doing a course and forgetting about it because that's what happens um, to be then engaging in nudges over time that's a that's a bit of a change to how you would normally study so bringing some of that science to life in the learning and also then giving people choice to opt out of those nudges I think is, is also important as well yeah it's definitely a behavior shift I think for for a lot of people in terms of how they access information but also um are involved in in its consumption on a daily basis as well and, and like you say it needs to be perhaps it's not an all-at-once approach it's a it's a gradual process yeah I, you know i i think when when i kind of explain um some of some of this stuff one of the things i turn to is um some learning theory around uh from a guy called john sweller um and that's uh uh, around um, cognitive load theory even though that his his research came out in the 80s it is hot right now his research is is, is really really hot um, and cognitive load theory states that your working memory is limited in capacity um, so you can only hold so much information so sweller suggests this is this is down to maybe two or four things at a time so that's not not much um and um so uh and also you're limited on time so things only hang around for for 20 seconds so you've got you know you've got a limited capacity and not much time to work with um, this means if you design learning you need to chunk stuff down so that course type you just mentioned that is bad look this that goes against um, what uh, what we believe is good in terms of learning. So you know when people say um, you should only put three things on a PowerPoint, there's something in that, you know, that's, that's cognitive load theory in, in action. And also when it comes to that 20 second limit, what that means is you need to go slowly, you need to take it easy. And if you don't follow these two things, what you do end up doing um, is you overload the brain so if you try and kind of cram too much stuff um, into your into your learning you overload the brain and what happens there well the learners motivation drops they become disinterested um, and you've lost them so I like yeah if I like to bring a piece of science up to kind of talk around that John Sweller's cognitive load theory is a good starting point for me do you think it's a little bit of a, of a um, hot topic at the moment because of that kind of re-immersion into society that we've seen over the past kind of six months say of uh, people experiencing that overload that sensory overload and going back into cities or back into office environments do you think that might play a part in that resurgence of interest in his work yeah i'm not sure why his work is so, why his work is more popular i think more popular now that than it was. I think it's some of these things are of the time. And I think it is it fits really nicely into what's going on in the kind of into the world of learning science. And then there's more research that gets built around it. So someone comes out with a theory, more people look into that theory and they build around that theory. And so more there's more and more evidence to suggest that theory is a good theory. And that sometimes takes time. 
Um, and so that could be could be one of the reasons. But yeah, we're we're facing a lot more burnout, and yeah, I suppose we're more conscious of these things. You're right; we are more conscious of our own well-being um, and the impact that work plays um, on our life and uh, and what it's doing to our brain. Yeah, and something we we, we spoke about um, before we started this recording was the idea of um, retrieval practice. I'm not sure whether you can kind of go into that in a bit of detail for us and maybe give us an example of of what that means or what it is. Yeah, yeah, because retrieval practice and um, uh, spaced practice, they're kind of really good um, bedfellows. Um, And retrieval practice itself um is all about the art of recall um so it's all about recreating what you've already learned and that process of recalling that information um from our from our memory forces us to extract um and examine what we know for example um you learn from an online course and then a little while later maybe even after some sleep um, you try to recall as much of that that learning as possible, um, and you could, you know, you could draw pictures, you could write stuff down. But what you're trying to do is recreate what you've learned, and uh, it's not easy. Retrieval practice is something that requires quite a bit of practice, but it's effortful, and that is exactly what makes it so effective, because during that recall process. Um, we're strengthening we're strengthening our memories essentially um, so if you design learning you can use something like um, I would say open-ended questions and the more open-ended the question um, the wider uh, the range of re, uh, retrieved knowledge will be um, extracted so um, when I uh, interesting I, I recently interviewed a teacher she's a great practitioner of the science of learning and we were talking about my young children and she said one thing you've got to stop doing is um, stop asking them what they did that day Um, what you need to do is ask them what they did yesterday and this helps them practice retrieval because they're having to recall something that happened not just now or just a few hours ago but yesterday and it is really interesting you almost see them I've been practicing this on uh, my children you almost see them like digging into their memories and slowly and surely rebuilding what happened um, the the previous day so um, yeah really really important thing the idea of of retrieval I would say if you want to see uh, retrieval practice and for that matter space practice in action then I would download uh, the language app Duolingo it is brilliant. It uses quite a few learning science concepts um, and yeah, retrieval and, and space practice are in that. It's got about 500 million users. So this stuff works that they're using. Um, and um, they use, as I said, space practice and retrieval practice as part of their learning delivery. And in fact, Duolingo have a, a team of learning scientists turning research into product improvement. So it's a great way for you to look at a learning science concept, get your head around the learning science concept, and then practice it, put it in practice, be conscious that, oh, they're trying to get me to retrieve something here, or, ah, they're spacing stuff out. I'm getting a nudge um, a day later or two days later 
to go and learn that bit of Spanish <laughs> that I was learning a few days ago. So it's a fantastic way to see it in action. Yeah, it's that nudge that's important as well, I think, in, in those circumstances and giving you that kind of, um, yeah, well, effective nudge to go and go and do it and to remind you that it's there and, yeah, to make you think, oh, yeah, should should really pick that up again. <laughs> I've left it a couple of days. Let's see, let's see what I remember. Um, I was actually having a conversation with one of my colleagues yesterday about Duolingo and how they, they send so many alerts and they always find a way to get through to you, even if you turn the alerts off. So I guess it's, it's the other end of the scale in that instance, but um, it's funny that you should mention it. Yes, you make an interesting point there, because, and, and I, I referred to this before because it is that thing of choice, because you can design a course with space practice in mind, but it's only effective if the learner engages with it. You know, it's a behavioral shift, it's something different than they're used to, and they've got to engage with these nudges over time, but it's doing a great job embedding the learning, but uh, they, they need the choice and they need to understand why it's important, what's in it for them. And that's where trying to bring some of the science to life in the learning is, is not a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Um, so I guess before we, we wrap up, I know um, you recently started um, investigating or being interested in brain health in general. Um, and it's something that I've also been re researching a little bit um, after Thrive colleagues were all offered a subscription to Heights, which is a brain health supplement. And I think we spoke about this last time we chatted. So I guess without getting too complex or into too much detail, how how do you think we can promote good brain health in general or what, sh what are the key things we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think there are three, three key areas, really. There is sleep, which I've mentioned before, and the importance of sleep. Um, I'll bang on about the importance of sleep to the day I die <laughs> when it comes to learning. And it's tough, you know, I've got two young children um, having a good sleep pattern is not um, uh, is not something that comes easy. Yeah, I feel your I totally feel your pain there. <laughs> um, yeah, so every time I talk about sleep, people go, but <laughs> I've got two young kids on. You know, I've got other things in my life that that um, um, inhibit sleep. Um, but it, but it's interesting though, isn't it? Because you, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I genuinely feel like the days I do manage to get a good night's sleep, I can tell how much more effective I am at, at, at everything. Um, and and then it make, it does make you think like how you need to, I suppose, be a little bit gentler with yourself on the days where you're maybe not able to get as much sleep and take that into account in the things that you're doing or things that you expect of yourselves on those days. Yeah, you know, um, you've you've got a brain there. It's part of your body. You've got to treat it in a particular way. And I think diet, um, you know, a, a diet is a big thing for good brain health and learning. Um, there isn't a huge body of research that, or a really strong evidence base to suggest you should eat this or you should eat that. You know, um, people talk about how oily fish are good for the brain or superfoods. I think what you should really try and focus on is what you shouldn't eat, because I think that's um, that's that's the, the danger for the brain. I, um, I always call out, what's it, Lauren Moorman, um, she always says, you know, if you buy an amazing car, you won't put really bad petrol in it. You know, it's, you know, you've got to feed the brain. The brain uses so much energy um, on a on a daily basis, especially when you're 
you know, you're focusing on tasks and your your attention is taken to, to particular tasks and to learning. So you need to look after it. You need to eat healthily um, and you, um, uh, yeah, you need to have a good diet and for good brain health. Um, so yeah, if you're going for long periods of deep learning, um, like I'm embarking on a um, neuro, uh, the fundamentals of neuroscience course, which is taking up quite a lot of my time and it's a tough subject matter, needs a lot of focus and attention, then, you know, brain health is important to me and diet, I'm conscious of my diet and, and sleep as well. And the other thing is, is exercise. Um, exercise is incredibly important. Um, and um, studies from the university, uh, Columbus University, um, suggest that um, exercise helps increase the size of the hippocampus, which is where, um, you know, memory and, and learning happens. So um, it's a really, really important thing to do is to, to, to exercise. And it does have an impact, uh, impact on uh, your learning and your, and your brain health. And then this huge amount of research which is, which is coming out and beginning to bubble to the surface about your gut brain. You know, your gut is your, your, your second brain almost in this. It's a fascinating area, one that I'm beginning to research and beginning to get immersed in. Yeah. So, yeah. And you're, and you're totally right. Like my, um, my husband has um, ulcerative colitis and it is something that, you know, we've spent a bit of time, time researching and there is a whole wealth of information out there, but I suppose, yeah, just, uh, so sleep, diet, exercise, sort those three out and you're on to a winner. Yeah, I think, I think you're on to a winner in life, let alone learning. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Carl. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. And um, I'm sure there'll be people listening who perhaps want to get in contact with you or carry on a conversation. So how do they do that? I know you've got a few different channels. Do you want to just um, to let people know? Yeah, so... Um, uh, you can uh, find uh, my videos that I mentioned um, and find me on LinkedIn. So Carl Chrysostomo on LinkedIn. Also, you can search the hashtag Carl Learns on LinkedIn and that will bring up uh, all my videos because I tag all my videos. Um, you can also, um, I put my videos on a YouTube channel as well, which is a bit easier to kind of navigate around than, than LinkedIn. And um, uh, you can find that just by searching Carl Learns. Um, and you can find my website and, and my work at carllearns.com. Brilliant. Thanks, Carl. And, and thanks so much again for taking part in, in this podcast. Great. Thanks a lot, Helen. It's a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Thrive Content Podcast. Visit www.thrivelearning.com for more information. Be bold. Be brave. Thrive.